Supported Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Hello, I'm Eugene Rashad. Join me every Saturday from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. for the best in jazz on your community radio station, KBOO 90.7 on your FM dial. But I dig, and I know you dig, because I got four requests for this thing already today. Strutting right away. That was KBOO volunteer disc jockey George Page. Page has been playing jazz and popular black music on KBOO for the past 12 years. What I do to the audience I draw, hopefully, is to please them with all types of black music. Mostly what you can't hear as a rule on uh, larger black-oriented stations in L.A. or San Francisco. I play a lot of blues and a lot of jazz. All of it's black-oriented, but it's not the cuts you're going to hear on the other jazz shows. It's not the cuts you're going to hear on... Uh, other stations because other stations just don't play jazz and blues in a black vein the way I do here. This is Barbara Lamorticella and this is Talking Earth, your free range poetry show broadcast from radio station KBOO 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. We're in the midst of KBOO's winter pledge drive all thrills and no frills. There are lots of reasons to find KBOO's thrilling, and we've given you even more reasons by putting together special theme programming for this pledge drive. You can help the station make its very modest goal of $15,000 while letting us know that we thrill you by going to kboofm give or texting KBOO to 44321. And to find a complete listing of KBOO's Pledge Drive specials, go to kboo.fm slash thrills. Talking Earth was founded by Walt Curtis and is now co-hosted by Walt, myself, Dan Raphael, and Patrick Bocard. The show has been on KBOO for more than 40 years, featuring a diversity of voices, local, national, and international. I planned a program tonight to highlight what we've shared over the years with readings by Margareta Waterman and Albert Huffstickler and a special presentation of some of the hundreds of poems I've especially loved and copied into my computer. There's so many I couldn't decide what poems to choose, so I left it to destiny. Meditating, closing my eyes, and running my fingers up and down the computer screen from A to Z. It stopped first on the poems of Mahmoud Darwash, and then on two poems about peace, a poem about death, 
and then on the poetry of Portland's Walida Emerisha. Bertolt Brecht famously wrote, What kinds of times are these when to talk about trees is almost a crime because it implies silence about so many horrors? I was a young teenager in the late 50s and early 60s when I began writing. Poetry was dominated by a few editors and publications on the East Coast, and to talk about horrors in poetry was almost a crime. This broke open in the Vietnam years in the 60s when poets began protesting the war. Today, along with the sun that comes in through the window, is the specter of war doing a scarecrow dance and as it always does, telling lies. Although Western poets have been assuring us for years that poetry does nothing, changes nothing, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word. And against the Western tradition of the impotence of words, of poetry, I penned this a few years ago in a poem called Afterlife. Poetry relies on the conviction there are trapdoors in words where great changes can enter. The words themselves turn to windows or doors big enough for revolution, revelation, kisses or friends. Different poets' windows open on different vistas, some personal, some planetary, some even universal or cosmic. Mahmud Darwash came out of what has been described as the tradition of the political poet in Islam, the man of action whose action is poetry. Darwash was born in Galilee, but his home village was captured and raised by the Israelis to keep its people from returning to their homes inside the new state of Israel. His family returned to the Accra area inside Israel a year later. He published his first book of poems at 19, studied for a year at Moscow State University, then moved to Egypt and Lebanon. When he joined the PLO, he was forbidden to return to Israel, so he settled in Palestine, in Ramallah. Darwash died at 67 in 2008, and is regarded as the Palestinian national poet. Walida Imarisha is a writer, an educator, a public scholar, an activist, a poet, and a fiery spoken word performer. She's assistant professor in the Black Studies Department and the director of the Center for Black Studies at Portland State University. We'll open this segment with a poem by Darwash which appeared in 2007, the year before he died, on the website Poets Against War. The Girl, the Scream On the beach a girl, and the girl has a family, and the family has a house. And the house has two windows and a door. And in the sea a warship passes the time while hunting pedestrians on the shore. Four, five, seven, fall on the sand. And the girl survives for a little bit because a hand of fog, some kind of divine hand, rescues her. 
So she calls, Father, oh, Father, get up. Let's go back. The sea is not for our kind. But he, shrouded in his shadow in the rise of absence, does not reply. Some of his blood on the palm trees, some of it in the clouds. And the voice carries her higher and farther than the beach. She screams in the night of wilderness, but there's no echo to echo. Then she becomes the eternal scream in breaking news that is no longer breaking news when the fighter jets return to bombing a house with two windows and a door. These are words from my journal in 2019. It's a harsh thing to learn, not fake news, but true. What your government will do to others, your government will do to you. Here, in a poem recorded in 2015 at Portland Community College, is Walida Imarisha telling a tale of what our government did to some other Americans in 2005. While she was reading, Walida took deep breaths and struck her chest, which you will hear from time to time in the poem. There was still water standing six feet deep in people's homes two weeks after the flood. Through waters laced with chemicals and human excrement and bloated bodies, black and brown people went out every day to save the kin left behind shredded and discarded. King George said, let them eat flood water. And they choked on the watery ashes of progress. Please, he said, standing in a canoe in what remained of the seventh ward, hands in the air, eyes trained on the hypnotic guns of four officers who minutes before had fired three shots that may or may not have been warnings. Please, he said, heart heavy in his mouth. I'm looking for the body of my son. Let me find my son's body. The Mississippi River was dragged in the 60s to find the bodies of three civil rights workers murdered by the Klan. Dozens of human remains were found, all black, all nameless. They were unimportant to media coverage and bureaucracy and good race relations. So they were thrown back to the river. How many lives were submerged until they stopped kicking? The Mississippi is claiming the bodies of the lynched once again. And in a town two hours outside of New Orleans, corpses were unearthed from the graves set free to flow down the street. An old man sits on his porch. I built this house with my hands. Lived here 58 years with my wife. Till she died two years ago. I saw her casket in the water two weeks ago. I can't get nobody to help me put her back in the ground where she belongs so she can rest. Won't anybody help me? Dear God, FEMA, please help us. Don't leave us here to die. Read the graffiti on a house completely surrounded by water. Two weeks and no relief. Three weeks and no aid. Four weeks and no FEMA. Yeah, they gave us something. The brother snorted. Dreads coiled and purring on top of his head. He was one out in boats every day taking people to the promised land of higher ground. On the fifth day, 
Red Cross dropped some hard rock candy on our heads. Don't let them tell you they never gave us nothing. And they gave them National Guard and the NYPD and the US Forestry Department and the INS and Border Patrol and the Office of Homeland Security and state troopers and detachments and battalions and tanks and automatic camps and work camps and concrete floors and nightsticks and blood and blood and blood and bullets. And don't let them tell you they never gave us nothing. The waters have receded and this human tide trickles in. An old young woman stands in her decomposing house, black mold coating the walls, baby pictures, high school diplomas. Her four daughters chase after their 11 collective children. She holds the youngest one in her arms and he has nothing but wise eyes and heavy brow. Of course we're staying. She hefts the tiny sage to the other hip. I don't know what we're gonna do. But this, this is ours. We won't leave it. And she does not mean this cramped house and dead yard out front. She means this, this spark of hope, soggy, sputtering, but burning out enough space. To catch a breath. We'll end this segment with another Dawash poem. This one is called Beyond Personification. I sit in front of the television since I can do nothing else. Over there, in front of the television, I place my emotions. And I see what happens to and for me. Smoke rises from me, and I extend my severed arm to grab my body parts that are scattered out of numerous bodies. But I can neither catch nor escape them, because the gravity of pain is unbearable. I am under siege by air, land, sea, and language. The last plane took off from Beirut's airport and placed me in front of the television so I could see my death with millions of viewers. Nothing proves that I am when I think along with Descartes, and even when the sacrificial offering rises out of me now in Lebanon. I enter the television, the beast and me. I know the beast is stronger than I am in the clash of the jet with the bird. But I am addicted, perhaps more than I should be, to the heroism of metaphor. The beast ingested me, but did not digest me. And I came out safe more than once. And my soul that had flown out of me and out of the beast's belly like a beam of light used to reside in another body, agile and stronger but I do not know where I am now, in front of the television or in the television. I see my heart rolling like a pine cone from a mountain in Lebanon to Gaza. A few years ago, I had the poet Teal Ansari on Talking Earth. Teal hosts a Monday night poetry show on KBU called Wider Windows 
and that night read from a stunning manuscript of her poems called Dervish Lions. Dervish Lions has finally been published. It's a wonderful full-length book, sure to establish Teal among the finest poets in the state. I don't have time to read a longer poem of Teal's tonight, but after the pine cone, after Lebanon and Gaza, here's a short poem that speaks to trees and to poetry with no apologies. It's the first poem in the book called Paper Birches. There are white birches outside my building. On a clear afternoon, the west sides of the slender trunks blaze with sunlight. The east sides glow with soft light reflected from the building windows. There is no darkness around these trees. Moss will never grow on them. I hold up a sheet of paper and it kindles bright on both sides. I hold up a poem and one side is lit by reflection from the faces of listeners. The other side is brilliant with divine radiance. In this transaction, I illuminate nothing. My fingerprint on the paper is only a shadow. The poem is incandescent. The poem is a white birch. Now, a poem, a prayer, and an observation about peace. The observation was famously made by Mary Parker Follett, a much-quoted social theorist who died in 1933 and was one of the founders of classical management theory. She said, We have thought of peace as passive and war as the active way of living. The opposite is true. War is not the most strenuous life. It is a kind of rest cure compared to the task of reconciling the differences. From war to peace is not from the strenuous to the easy existence. It is from the futile to the effective, from the stagnant to the active, from the destructive to the creative way of life. The world will be regenerated by the people who rise above these passive ways and heroically seek by whatever hardship by whatever toil, the methods by which people can agree. But reconciling our differences doesn't mean reconciling with evil. In 1939, W.H. Auden wrote, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. And sometimes peace must be armed. Here's a poem from the Italian poet Sante Notarnicola. Peace is a colored dish rag in your window. Peace is your two white breasts freed in the wind. Peace is that tool, the tranquilizing machine gun that you have hidden between the flower pots of sweet basil and mint. I'll finish the segment with a poem for, with a prayer for peace. May the farmers be farming and the teachers be teaching. May the flautists be fluting and the rivers be preaching. May the workers be working and the injured be healing. May the children be playing 
and the rulers be kneeling. May the builders be building and the poets be poeming. May the living be living and the soldiers be homing. I wrote that in 2009 as the Iraq war was still ongoing. It's still relevant with one change. Now with drones and, and robot warriors, we don't need to call the soldiers home, but to call the money home. Away from the military industrial complex so we can go to work solving the problems that threaten us and the whole planet. I don't usually read my own poems on Kebu and never read new work until it's seasoned, but here's a piece I've been working on for a week or so. It's called My Country's Elites. My country's elites, the smart ones, the brightest, are dancing around on the lips of the war, telling lies like they always do. My country's elites, the ones who fly over, looking down on Ukraine and both Georgias and Pittsburgh and Toledo, seeing only deplorables. Don't they know with no hearts they will die? There's a saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The U.S. media is trying to fool us a third time with propaganda as thick as it was during the prelude to the Vietnam and Iraq wars. Independent media outlets have never been more important. KBU is the oldest completely independent, listener-supported, volunteer-powered community radio station in the country. Its independence means we reflect our city and our region in a way that no other media can. We make all our programming decisions locally. KBU is literally the voice of Portland. Your pledge will make you a full-fledged member, part of its decision-making, its programming, and its extraordinary experiment in democracy, where diverse communities come together to do the hard and important work of finding agreement. 80% of our funding comes from our members, and we are frugal with our money. You can show us your support by going to kboofm slash give, texting KBOO to 44321, or mailing a check to KBOO, 20 Southeast 8th, Portland, Oregon, 97214. This is Barbara Lamorticella, and this is Talking Earth. The next two poets you'll hear, Margareta Waterman and Albert Huffstickler, have been pillars of the poetry communities in two different regions in the country. Their voices are very different. Margareta is the author of 29 published books. Her earliest academic interest was in mathematics, and her work, personally grounded, reflects a philosophical inquiry into the nature of spirit and matter, of the nature of love and subjectivity, and of the world as an act of ecstasy. Approaching 90 now, Margareta moved to Oregon with her husband and children during the communal years of the 60s. From 1987 on, she was active in the flourishing Seattle poetry scene, instrumental and involved in the Red Sky Poetry Theater and Bumbershoot. She founded Nine Muses Books in Seattle, a celebrated poets collective which published, produced, and otherwise promoted the works of 50 of her peers. 
She now lives with her extended family on rural acreage outside Roseburg, Oregon. Margareta has generously offered a set of two Nine Muses collections of her own poetry, iteration, and denouement as premiums during this pledge drive. Their collector's items, like all Nine Muses books beautifully produced and lavishly illustrated. Here, recorded by Zoom, is Margareta reading. Margareta, you have an extensive body of work and an always renewing stream of poetry. I asked you to send me poems that you might particularly want to read on tonight's show, and we went through and assembled a set. I had you on 16 years ago in 2006. There were several poems from that reading at that time that really stuck with me. And I'm wondering if you might open with one of those poems. I picked this one because I think it speaks to the something about the essential nature of poetry. And as I recollect, it was from your book, Iteration, and begins with the lines, on the page in the imprint on this paper. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you have that poem handy? On the page, in the impress of the paper, many patterns lurk. Also, in this body, waveforms and frequencies crave release. The pen is the dancing bridge between them. I needn't choose. Reality consists in the consensus of those interactions, its moving balance. The pen, the eye, consciousness. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Now, um, for the set we've put together for tonight, um, opening with the poem Medea, and I'm going to be quiet while you read, uh, just okay. lis listening to the flow, and you can tell us whatever you want to tell us about uh, the poems as you go, okay? Well, I hope the poem will tell what I wanted to tell you, because that's how the poem happens. Medea, call her a witch if you like. You who stay within the social template, psychic enclave of false walls, hiding the unknown. Call her a witch if you like, priestess of the far reaches, the barely known, dark only because you hide from it. Space is not dark. And she makes her home there. Space is not dark. It is the dance floor. The floating pool where all is play. While daily struggles of human life do not leave us. And we see the choreography they follow. Call her a witch if you like. Left her family far behind left everything to follow what love 
not quite, hunger for the freedom of the dance. <laughs> if the template doesn't fit and you swim beyond the seas, she is waiting there to praise you with the welcome of the skies. Call her a witch if you like. There is love and love, love of the fingers for resilient flesh, hand for the brush, the pen, keyboard or strings, eye that rests so lovingly on a view, memorizing every detail, love of the carpenter for the grain of the wood. But then there is love, emotional fluid generated by proximity or memory of at least pleasure. Painter's eye measures through careful and detailed adoration. Fingers enjoying the grip of pen or brush because the marks are desired, because the marks have a value uninterested in the fingers. While music's hands export energy of the entire body and human lovers do their best to steal from skin to feed the heart. There is love and love. This next one, I guess you could say, is a little more personal on the same subject. Preamble to a set of love poems. I wanted only the moments, the romance, the idea. I didn't want obligation, soap opera, companion the taste of each love. And then I told myself, when I am old, I will see them all together, these tastes of love, and from them know complete love. Now I am old, and it is true. These tastes, these loves, many and different, these loves, Beautiful, everyone, each giving me essence. Truly, I know you. Truly, you have given my life sweetness and knowledge, leaving me free to do my appointed work. And now I see it, this next one is even more personal, more getting to the point of whatever the point is of what we call love. And then my tongue, my tongue gets hungry for the taste of stroking skin, singing pleasure pathways to the deeps underneath the skin. Ourselves, our real selves, we cannot help it. And the taste so fine, 
My tongue gets lonely, though my heart does not. Doesn't yours yearn for this pinpoint spark when tongue most sensitive touches spark across the gaff to hidden self inside the flesh? A taste and then spark, speak across the gaff. This comes from out the window where I live. Thunder and winds strong. The maples dance broadly across the whole sky. Returning, of course, to their normal geodetic location. Rain follows. Busy, nervous little winds ruffling leaves and small swaying winds sweeping branches. Dark descends in the shadowed shelters. The air is excited. The rain does not disappoint. Thunder still rumbles. Every leaf and branch is awake. Flowers droop and drink. Immutable earth smiles in the mirror. I am the mirror. Focus. My eyes will no more than fuzz. No way they can shift their scale to see population of wavings that make the table look and feel so firm. If my vision fails, table might be blurred or fuzzy, but no doubt still a table, color and form, and hard enough to hurt if banged against. The mind, it's true, can travel further, what with one thing and another. Objects all before my eyes Imagination stretches, but they are objects still. No matter that I know is just a bunch of tangled waves, they do not fall. My hand does not pass through them. I eat my piece of toast, firm as a chew, and stomach answers, yes, it has been fed. So much for focus, limited indeed. Eyes can only see what's already in their realm. Imagination stretches, but eyes remain themselves. The heroes whose screams sustain us. And I do know my sanity and my mediocrity are of the same measure. Not fear of madness stops me. What I am is all I've got. I am not chosen for greater than this I am. And I do know my comfort 
and my sense of entitled self delimit what greatness I can muster. I have bled and survived, have not betrayed my youthful passions, nor paid the greater price that speaks the greater words. I found my way from hell and took it gladly. Though many stories linger there, deeper than I went, escaped from suicide with more than my life, but not all. Many stories waiting, gems for those who dive, driven to dive into the deep agony, loss of self, and screaming, bring up the gems over and over until it breaks you and you die needing no hand but your own. There's two more. I see. I have three more at least. The three more that we arranged. Music. It's not nothing. Oh, I don't have it's not nothing in this pile. I'm sorry. I could probably find it, but... Do you want oh, me to read it? Yes, why don't you? If you have okay. it there, that would be great. Okay, you read music. And then you read It's Not Nothing, and then I'll read After Dying. Music is the voice of the equations, the formulas made by the mix and mess of universal complexity. Equation is the name of a curve. Music is its voice. A shape is a shape is a shape. By any other name, the same. A shape. But when it curves our mind, we see another way the universal field is everything and nothing all at once. The pleasure of music is secondary, a mere result, while everything a mind can ponder is drawn in vibratory air. Well, Margareta, Drawn in the Vibratory Air is the next poem, which um, on the spur of the moment, I wasn't planning to do this, but I, I'm going to try reading it. Um, drawn in the Vibratory Air were, were your last words, and the next words are, It's not nothing made out of nothing, but it does exist. This universe we sit in, condemned to notice, observe, meddle with, query, not nothing. Therefore, it is not necessary to invent it. All we need to do is let the elephant out of the marble let the colors fall on the canvas 
let the voices have their say. It's not nothing. Let it in. Oh, Barbara's so beautiful. <laughs> and and the last one we picked, and, and this is also um, a, a segue, which means that it leads into um, the next segment of the show, um, which is the last reading of the very revered underground poet, Albert Huffstickler, who died at 75, and just a couple weeks before he died. In our 2006 interview, you said that what you really admired are people who, I'm paraphrasing, but who speak with their own voice out of whatever your essence and your voice is, if it is authentic to you and comes from you. And I also value that. And Albert Huffstickler, he was definitely speaking authentically. Um, this poem that we chose for the ending of your reading, I think really segues beautifully. You made Albert feel surreal for me. After dying, it takes patience to lie in peace while waves pass through, waves of rainbows, waves of soap operas, anything that might be tempting. Patience and faith, nothing need be done. Death means something is ended, including responsibility. No more to be done for all the things this life has cared about, it must be left, abandoned. Patience to lie in peace for 49 days and let the waves dissolve. The life that was be gone, that what comes next be fr is free to be itself. <sighs> Thank you, thank you so much, Margareta. You've been listening here to Margareta Waterman. Uh, I highly recommend that you get a, a list of her many books and enterprises uh, by going to Wikipedia. Margareta, thank you for this. This was a, a beautiful read. Well, it's really been... A Great, wonderful to be working with you again after all these years. And good night now. Good night, dear. <laughs> good night, listeners from me. Our next poet, Albert Huffstickler, died at 75 in Texas in August of 2002. His obituary called him the beloved unofficial poet laureate of Austin. And in 1989, the Texas State Legislature honored his contribution to poetry. Like William Stafford, he wrote a poem a day, taught seminars, and inspired others. Only Huff's classrooms were coffee shops and cafes, hospitals and care facilities. And although Huff didn't drink, his voice resembled Charles Bukowski's. Huffstickler's book, Why I Write in Coffee Houses and Diners, a collection of selected poems, was published in 2000 by iUniverse. We owe a big thanks to Huff's friend Felicia, who recorded this. 
This was written today, January 15th. It's called Dream Coffee. I was blacked out on the bed with the flu, dreaming strange dreams. I kept wanting a cup of coffee so I'd surface and start to get up, then sink back under and dream I'd made a cup of coffee, but then I'd surface again and start to drink it, only to realize that I hadn't made it at all. I dreamed it. So then I'd black out again and go through the whole procedure all over. Finally, my desire for coffee triumphed, and I came fully awake, stumbled up, and made the coffee, and sat in the chair at the foot of my bed and drank it. It tasted good. It tasted real. Now, fully awake, more or less, I see the problem. I could dream making the coffee, but I couldn't dream waking and tasting it. Maybe that says something about the limitations of dreams. Maybe that's what keeps me here, keeps me from drifting across the borders of consciousness into a state of eternal dreaming, the taste of coffee. February 5th, 2002. Final thoughts. I don't know how you get over some things. I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure you're supposed to. My sadness for her has become a part of my life. It's there. It's integrated. I don't think it will ever leave. I think it's a gift. I think something will come of it. I don't know what, but something clean and comforting that no one will recognize as sadness at all. No, it will never leave. It will always be there. I don't know how to describe it. Call it a dark blessing. Alicia, this was written December 4th called hard times. I was broke that summer. I tried selling flowers on a street corner, wound up blistered the first day. Then Joe Cruz, who managed the tower restaurant evenings, let me mop up every evening and paid me out of the register and fed me a big supper while I was there. That got me gas and cigarette money. I was living in a little cottage on 12th Street, just living room, kitchen, and bath, $50 when he caught me. Some lawyer was handling the rent. After a while, I stopped paying, and he never said anything. It was a hard time. I was still getting over the split up with Jan. I couldn't seem to comprehend how to make a decent living. But the summer rolled by with Joe Cruz feeding me and giving me enough to get by on, and finally a job came open, and I was hired to wash dishes and cook hamburgers through the lunch rush, and time went on, and I survived. But there's a loneliness that comes with knowing you just don't quite fit, will never quite fit. A loneliness that wakes you sometimes in the night to lie there, staring up into the darkness, wondering how you ever got here. And it's a cold loneliness, and it eats at your bones, and suddenly you can't stand the darkness anymore and get up and put a light on and light a cigarette 
and sit there on the edge of the bed smoking, huddled into yourself like some poor lost creature caught in a snowstorm. And dawn finally comes and you get up and start moving because if you don't, you're sure you'll die. That was a long time ago, but I've never forgotten that feeling. It's there, deep inside me, lodged in my heart, where it will stay as long as there's breath in my body, and who knows, perhaps beyond. First poem of the new year, called Lazarus Rise. What he was saying is that we're all Lazarus, and rise each morning from the death of sleep. And no matter who you're with, that sleep is yours alone. And your mortality is waiting, and you put it on and go on about your business, and nothing has changed. Transcendence is not about death or dying. Transcendence is waiting somewhere in the wings. And in the meantime, there you are, with all your flaws and fears and nothing between you and them. And there's no protection, not even death. And it's not going to change. And you go on. That's all there is. Later you get to heaven, maybe. But in the meantime, there's this and that and all of it right in your face and unchanging from the loneliness of sleep. And there you are. And you unroll yourself from your shroud to find it all waiting for you and nothing you can do about it and that's how it is down here but the point is that you do it and after all the rapture and the gratitude and the wonder is it appropriate to ask what Lazarus did next well I'll tell you he picked up his tools nodded his thanks and went back to work Happy New Year. Light of the world. I made myself put the lights up in my front window the other day, my contribution to the celebration of Christmas. I had just survived another Thanksgiving and decided it was time to bite the bullet and get them up there where everybody could see. It wasn't a very good job. They're starting to sag already. Time to drag out the duct tape and have at it. What I'm getting at is the cost of what should be a simple celebratory act. But you get lonesome and your spirit sags and that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the time of love, of rebirth. But sometimes I get the feeling that I've managed to get stuck in the womb. So I have to perform a psychic cesarean on myself, drag myself out by the heels, and sometimes I make it, and sometimes I don't. When the years pile up, and love, well, love begins effortlessly, and then gradually it turns into work, and you have to drag yourself through the bad times, remembering that somewhere ahead there's light, like in somebody's front window, put there with no little effort to remind you of just that. Written today, November 27th. The mystery, 
this is the great mystery of my life, that my greatest trauma, the death of my twin, occurred at birth. There is no memory, only a sensation, and from that I have to reconstruct a memory. I can think of no analogy to describe it, perhaps being raped in your sleep. I was born in shock. I did not know I was alive. With that peculiar identification that comes to twins, I did not know that it was I that was alive. Bright lights are torture. Constriction is torture. I feel everything through my skin. I feel nothing through my skin. I am not here. I am somewhere on that long highway home, not aware that I wasn't supposed to go home because it was not me that had died. My consciousness moves involuntarily from around my body to some other dimension where no bodies exist. I am caught in a web of dimensions, not knowing which one I occupy. I am alien. I am dead. I am alive. I am here. I am engulfed in the mystery of my beginning as I am engulfed in the mystery of my end. Death will come as much less of a surprise than life did. Alicia, this came out in a magazine called Arsenic Lobster, which I got today. January 16th. Origins. We come here. We come alone. We don't know what we are. We become a body. Then we know what we are. But before we were a body, we were something. Always the stretching backward to remember. Always not quite remembering. Always the returning to what we know we are, but never satisfied. Always the dream of a grand reunion somewhere we have never known. The Damaged, January 22nd. You know them. You pass them on the street every day. They seldom meet your eye, and you have trouble meeting theirs. They can't hold their acts together. They are adrift. The tides of the world rush past them. Sometimes they beg. Sometimes they stand apart, heads bowed in silent supplication. Sometimes they rant, but they're all coming from the same place, the place of the damaged, of those whose balance wheels are broken beyond repair. You know that place. We all know that place. With some is buried deeper than others, but it's there in all of us. Time and circumstance will dictate how we deal with it or if we deal with it at all, but it's there. You see, we're all damaged or we wouldn't be here. Felicia, 
I read this to Richard Huff over the phone. He liked it. It's new. It's called Viewpoint. I understood women better after I had the teeth sitting down for a year. This was after my back surgery when my muscles wouldn't coordinate. If I contracted my bladder, my knees buckled. So I sat. It's a very different perspective, more contemplative. You also learn to hate wet toilet seats. But basically, you have more minutes in the day to sit behind a closed door and let your thoughts roam. It's probably why women are more spiritual than men. They have that extra time to just sit and contemplate eternity. My oldest sister once tried to prove that she could pee standing up. We were inside, so she had to stand in the shower. I don't think she proved much. I don't even know why she tried. There's something very relaxing about sitting down to pee. I recommend it. Lord knows we get few enough breaks in this world. You have to take them where you find them. This is called When the Goddess Dies. When the goddess dies, everybody dies. And she may not be a beautiful woman in purple robes with a halo around her head. She may be the old lady next door or the bag lady wandering in her peripheral vision unnoted or the waitress at your local cafe. She's who she is and it's your responsibility to know her and honor her because when she dies, you die. That's all I have to say. And the goddess dies every day somewhere, and that's what you need to know and note. Well, she returns too. That's her nature. But if you haven't honored her passing, then there's no way you can honor her return. That's what you need to know. And remember, that's where truth lies. When the goddess dies, you die. Whether your return or not is up to you. This is Barbara Lamorticella, and you've been listening to the voices of Walida Emerisha, Margareta Waterman, Albert Huffstickler, and the poems of many others who have been featured over the years on KBOO's poetry program, Talking Earth. KBOO is listener-supported and produced and hosted by volunteers. Over the years, we've trained thousands of people to make radio. We've been the cradle of professional journalists, the first performance platform for new musicians, and an important venue for news and analysis about our community and the world. This is our winter pledge drive. All thrills, no frills, and you can thrill us and let us know that we thrill you by going to kboo.fm give and making a pledge, or by texting KBOO to 44321, or sending a check to KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th, Portland, 97214. Thank you for listening, and thanks to all the wonderful volunteers, members, and staff who make this station possible.
This is a legal ID. You are listening to KBOO Portland, and I am Dr. Demento, just barely legal. This is KBOO Portland, community radio for the Pacific Northwest. Stay tuned at midnight for Joe Woods and the Tiki Cha-Cha Club. Right now, it's the bedtime radio show for grown-ups, Gremlin Time. Good evening and welcome to Gremlin Time. This is Fortunato. I'm going to read the story myself today. And so I always like to fall back on a story by Jack London. And uh, this one first appeared in the uh, May May 22nd, 1909 edition of the Saturday Evening Post. And then was later uh, reprinted in a 1914 collection, The Strength.